You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Welcome back to Understanding Europe. Today, Sharon and I will be tackling the large topic of collective memory. As this podcast is releasing, uh, it is Europe Day. We found this was a perfect occasion to delve into what these days mean and what is the thinking behind them and what are the issues in general with creating European identity or collective memory. To that end, we're joined by Dr. Alina Sierp, Professor in European Studies at Maastricht University. She's the co-founder and co-president of the Memory Studies Association and the Council for European Studies Research Network on Transnational Memory and Identity in Europe. In May 2022, Dr. Alina Sierp organized the inter an international symposium on critical theories of history and memory, which addressed the problem of how to produce a European history and collective memory of the past, which meaning can often be contested and is very often subject to political disputes. So without further delay, let's give this a listen. Welcome to episode eight of Understanding Europe. Thank you very much for joining us, Alina. Thanks a lot for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Well, then let's dig right into it without much delay. Today's episode is being released on the 9th of May, also known as Europe Day. But not too long ago, the 4th of May, Dutch Remembrance Day, an important touchstone for Dutch identity and memory of the Second World War, came to pass. There are many such important days, for example, um, when this episode airs, but there are other significant dates across Europe and the world that are set to remind us of important days or events. So maybe let's start off with using Europe Day as an example to understand what these days of remembrance signify. Would you help us unpack that? Yes, so Europe Day is the day Europe is celebrated, the European Union is celebrated. Um, it's the 9th of May, which was the day that the Schuman Declaration was made. I will say something about the genesis in a few seconds. And, um, yeah, what is so important about it is that's one of the very few European-wide remembered days. It's one of the few European Remembrance Days, if you so want. There's not that many of them, and Europe Day is one of them. It's, of course, a very important symbol for the European Union, together with the flag, for example. So if you look at the website of the European Union, then it will be categorized as one of the symbols. Reach is, of course, a different question. So how many people know about this? Um, I think not many, actually. People studying European studies maybe do, um, or others who are interested in the European Union. But I think if you ask the average citizen on the street, they will probably not know what the 9th of May signifies. How did it come about? Um, well, this was in 1985, um, so already some time ago. And it was a reaction to a report that was uh, commissioned by the Ad Hoc Commission for People's Europe, um, which was chaired by Pietro Adonino. The Adonino report is often mentioned when it comes to European identity and European symbols, etc., because it established several things. And one of them was Europe Day. And the aim really was to foster some sort of European identity. And the Europe Day and then also the flag, for example, they were then adopted by the following Milan meeting. That's basically how it, how it started. So Europe Day signifies just Europe. It's a celebration of Europe. Is there any other symbolism or significance to that day? 
the 9th of May? The 9th of May was chosen not because it was the end of World War II. A lot of people think that. The 8th of May, uh, World War II came to its end with the capitulation of Germany, Nazi Germany at the time. In Russia, for example, the 9th of May is uh, Victory Day. So a lot of people think it has to do with the end of World War II. But this was a coincidence, if you so want. It was the declaration of, well, the Schumann Declaration, the day the Schumann Declaration was made um, in 1950, and it proposed the founding of the European Coal and Steel Community, which is considered to be the forerunner of what today is the European Union. It just happened that there was a French cabinet discussion just before, and then there was a really important meeting between France, Britain, and the US government where the so-called German question was going to be discussed. And it was particularly the question of um, yeah, lifting the restrictions on the German Ruhr area and the, the industries that were connected to it. And the French government wanted to make a declaration just before this important meeting. And it just happened to be on the 9th of May. So it has nothing to do with the end of World War II. But yeah, I think the symbolism behind it, it's often played on as well, of course, right? The European Union is being also a peace project. Is it true that it's not celebrated in all the European member states? Yeah, I already mentioned a little bit that reach is a different question. So I think some countries are more active when it comes to celebrating it. So in Germany, often there's a whole Europe week organized. So it's not all around the 9th of May. In Luxembourg, it's actually a national holiday. <laughs> um, in other countries, it's hardly anything. And I think, again, citizens are not very much aware of it. Um, if you want to feel Europe Day, you have to go to Brussels because the European institutions open their doors. They organize lots of activities, often also for children, for example. Uh, there's games organized. The citizens can just visit the institutions. It's very much focused on the institutions and associations that deal with Europe and they organize things. But if you're not in contact, then you will probably not notice at all. Generally speaking, I mean, it was founded in 1985, but the significance and the amount of celebrations increased after the Maastricht Treaty. That was a little bit the moment also when I think the European Union got its name, European Union. But I think it was also the moment when there was this felt need of increasing the amount of possibilities for citizens to connect somehow um, and that was the, the moment when yeah the amount of celebrations also increased. The other element that is important to mention is maybe that Europe Day was often used by candidate countries to lobby for the European Union. So Poland used that extensively in the 1990s so they, they used that day if you so want to really harness support and make things visible. Um, and you can also see that in the Balkans, in Ukraine. So everybody who's standing at Europe's doorstep, for them maybe Europe Day signifies even more something than it does for the actual member states. So as you said, it was something that candidate states, candidate member states used to lobby for the European Union. So it seems like uh, picking a day to a Remembrance Day specifically for Europe has a role to play on the way a member state feels a sense of belonging to the European Union, if that makes any sense. So based on your field of study, can, can we maybe explain what role does memory play in that? Yeah, I mean, you can answer it in a very philosophical way, of course, which is that memory is the basis of our sense of being sense of belonging you mentioned. Memory and identity indeed are very closely interrelated. It's almost impossible to detangle them. And memory has the power to integrate, to integrate societies, integrate groups. The future tended to have that as well. 
So for a long time, the future was the integrating force for societies, European societies particularly. But there's a lot of talk about the future not playing that role anymore. And since then, since this memory boom has started, really, there's a lot of focus on the past and the past as being something that um, could integrate and um, could bring people together. Um, and then when we're talking about the past, we're really talking about the memory of the past, not about history or historiography. So when we're talking about memory and we're talking about European identity or this field of study, there's a lot of terms that come up, uh, like collective memory or lieu de mémoire or all of those terms. Is it possible to break them down a bit to understand before we dig deeper into this topic? Um, yeah, it's actually complicated in the sense that the different terms mean different things depending on the disciplinary background people come from. And some sort of jargon, if you so want, has only developed fairly recently. So I think there's agreement on certain terms now what they mean um, but there's still discussion about uh, many of them I'm just going to pick out uh, the two most obvious ones because I think anyone who deals with memory will uh, stumble over them one of them indeed being collective memory that's a difficult term because it's multi-layered um, and there's an inherent paradox in it because you think about memory of saying it's something that's very individual right you as a person remember so how can it be collective um, and that, that was the big question um, and indeed it was tackled by a French scholar who is called Maurice Halbwax and again it's a name that will pop up the moment you deal with memory and uh, his idea was that we cannot remember outside our social context. So you cannot possibly remember something just by yourself. There's always a social context that frames um, the way you remember to the point that sometimes you cannot distinguish anymore. So to just give an example, childhood memories, how much do you can you distinguish between your own memories and memories that maybe came after because you looked at pictures or because people told you about it? And that is the case with almost anything. Now, it, it that doesn't explain enough. So other scholars decided to break the term down further. And I think the most useful yeah, description of this was coined by uh, Jan and Alida Asman. They distinguish between three different types of memory. You have the individual memory, which is an autobiographic memory. Then you have social memory. Asman also calls it communicative memory, which is a group memory, so memory that is shared within a group, and it's often transmitted via communicative exchange. Um, and then you have cultural memory, which is yeah the highest level, if you so want, and it can be detached from the human carriers. So it can be transmitted via institutions, via objects, uh, etc. Or days. Or days, exactly. Yeah. So Remembrance Days would be an example of this cultural memory, transmitter of cultural memory. Um, that's how it can transcend generations, um, and it's not bound to time period anymore. It's like individual and social memory. We talk about a time range of about 80 years, and cultural memory then can move on even further than that. The other term that often comes up when you talk about uh, memory is lieu de mémoire. That's, again, a French scholar, Pierre Nora, who coined this term. And initially, uh, he used it to describe a very French setting, if you so want. He came up with this massive, I think, nine-volume uh, oeuvre of um, yeah, descriptions of French lieu de mémoire. But it was then adopted also by others. So um, if you look now, I think almost every country has a book on Lieu de mémoire, and there's also one on European lieu de mémoire. So what are they? The French translation would be sites of memory, but it's not sites in the sense of a geographical term. So they don't have to be geographic 
sites, they can also be objects again. So um, a lieu de memoir could be a constitution, for example. Um, so basically a, a fixed point, if you so want, around which mem memory secretes itself and concentrates and um, people can get attached to. Um, and the idea really was that it's different from a milieu de memoir, which before were structuring society. So um, it all goes back to this idea of modernity and postmodernity, where um, what before created fixed points for society, ideologies, etc., has disappeared and societies need something else, individuals need something else to create some sense of belonging, to have an anchor, if you so want. There's many more terms that we could discuss, but uh, yeah, it's a very diverse field, so I just decided to, to keep it to those two. And then um, at the end, we can discuss resources um, where other terms can be looked up. Indeed. So if we want to go back to the, to the memory topic we're discussing, you said cultural memory has a has the highest significance in, in creating a sense of integration. And I wanted to ask um, about the role that memory has on f the identity formation. You also said that identity and memory cannot be disintegrated. They are very in entangled, so to say. So what is, what is specifically the role that memory plays in identity formation? A lot of identity is based on a sense of a common past, um, the memory of this, this past. Uh, I keep on saying memory and not history because I think it's an important distinction. There's also a discussion if the memory is not the same as history. Um, <laughs> that is a discussion that has not been solved. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like especially a sense of group identity is based on this idea of, of a common, common past, um, common memory of the past. And individuals and societies, they create some sort of narrative around it, a narrative that is then shared and brings people inside, creates this this group feeling um, also excludes people. Huh? We, we should always remember that. It's, it's not all, only about memory, but it's also about forgetting um, on the one hand. And it's always a question of, yeah, what is being forgotten also maybe purposefully, who's excluded from that. So especially when we talk about a cultural memory, then, then you have this very strong selective process. And what, what what happens both on the individual at the group level but also on society level is that images are created via these narratives towards the inside um, but also towards the outside. Uh, and I think if you look, if we go back to the kind of narratives around the 9th of May but also the, the 4th of May, Dutch Remembrance Day, then you can very clearly see what kind of image is being created on, on both sides, um, what's being focused on, what is possibly also being forgotten. So if you want to analyze a society, looking at Remembrance Days, for example, is actually very instructive because it tells you a lot about the society probably also about the state of democracy and the kind of, yeah, the kind of selective process that has been going on before this narrative was created. Can I ask why there is a contestation between the difference of history and memory? What is the debate? Uh, yeah, the, the debate is to what extent there's a difference. And some scholars believe that history and memory are subject to the same kind of forces, selective forces I, I mentioned before, that we cannot really look at history in an objective way anyway. So what we have there is, is more or less the same as, as memory. So if you create history, you're also creating memory. Others say, no, there's a clear difference. History is a, yeah, a discourse on the past, uh, which is trying to be as objective as possible. Memory is volatile and changing, and it's, uh, it's not objective at all. Uh, so it depends very much on wh whom, you, whom you ask there. There's probably a difference between humanities-based scholars and, and social sciences um, when it comes to that. 
my answer to it is that I think we have to distinguish between history, historiography, and memory. Um, so historiography, I think, is potentially problematic because, indeed, there you have the same kind of selective process that you have with memory. What is history? 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 Historiography. <laughs> it's a tough one. <laughs> it's uh, the science around history. Um, mm. So the, the creation of a historical narrative. Mm. So can we say memory is how we talk about history? Is that is that something that can be said in that debate or no? Yeah, how we talk about the past. I, I always prefer using the term past because mm. that's just more encompassing. Um, it's maybe also less contesting than contested than, than the term history. Mm. And it seems that there's a certain type of politics around memory, also what we remember and we do not remember, right? You said there is no objective way of looking at the past. Uh, it's always written by someone and it's always used for a certain purpose. For example, the 9th of May is used for maybe a certain type of European integration. So the European citizens could feel a sense of belonging to the European identity, if we can say that. So what is the debate around the politics of memory? How does it play a role? How does it shape? how one feels the sense of belonging to their own country, maybe, or their community. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, like the selection process is important there. And then the, the way the memory changes according to political and social needs. And so something that we remember, maybe we like to remember, I should say, some decades ago is maybe not a memory anymore that is wanted. And a very good example is the contestation around statues that we have witnessed in the last years. That's a very good example because, of course, these statues were put up with a certain idea in mind, usually glorifying a certain past. You can see that really nicely in the Netherlands, I think, um, with uh, references to people that were particularly active during the Dutch Golden Age. And now suddenly these statues are being torn down because they don't correspond anymore to our ideas of, of history. As we discover that those heroes were based or were very active in slave trade, for example, it's maybe not someone that we want to have in the middle of our square anymore. So this is a really good example, I think, where suddenly like the narrative changed, um, the, the kind of memory that is deemed important to keep changed. And then, of course, a whole question comes up. What do you do with the statue that has been standing there for decades? Um, and that's still, I mean, there is an element that maybe should be remembered and then another element that should be remembered, but not in that context, necessarily something positive. And it creates all kinds of debates, of course, huh? like because there's there's a question of agency, who is allowed to decide. You mentioned that a little bit. Who are the actors here? Um, who has the power also to to select and to make sure that other things are not coming up to the force? What kind of consequences does it have if we keep on going on like we always did? Um, who feels offended by that, for example? Um, and yeah, what what kind of memory do we want? to have in our society. I'm just, again, thinking about um, the memory of slave trade and slavery, etc. that still has repercussions for today. On, on that note, you said we, what kind of memory we would want to have in our society, right? So I'm thinking here about maybe the emergence of EU as an institution of the European Union post-World War II. So there were type of narratives that were used to to maybe justify why the European Union is needed and why it would be a good project to go forward with. So maybe here there's also a certain type of looking back on the European past and maybe to a way to move forward. So we need this institution so we would have peace or etc. etc. What were the narratives that the EU used so they can have a more sense of integration or a justification to look back on the past 
and also to feel to justify this project what were the prominent narratives so these narratives changed over time as well um, i think the one that remained is the one of world war Two and um, yeah europe rising out of the ashes like a phoenix almost that has always been there but it was not the most prominent from the beginning so you can distinguish broadly between three different phases one of them being the immediate post-war phase where reference to what would two were there but for example no reference to the holocaust because the holocaust was not something that was touched upon on a national level it took a long time before that actually arrived in the different countries before there was actually talk about the Holocaust and the same was on the European level. The Holocaust just didn't play any role, which from our perspective now is almost a bit surprising, right? Because I think the, a lot of the, the values are of the European Union are based around this idea that we don't want to have something like the Holocaust happen again. Then the next phase uh, started more or less in the 1970s, um, which was uh, a bit of a turning point because moment of oil crisis, economic hardship. Um, it was probably the first really economic crisis of the European Union. I say European Union, it was not called European Union then, but just to, to understand who we're talking about. And uh, I think there was a very strong felt need by politicians to have some sort of narrative that goes beyond just the pure economic perspective. The idea of, well, an economic union was not enough anymore, I think, for citizens to feel connected. So they, they looked for something else. And that was the moment when some sort of heritage discourse entered, which is also heritage, memory, the past. All of it is connected somehow. And uh, in the beginning, actually, <laughs> the, the, the references were much broader than just World War II. So there was Charlemagne, for example, as being the father of Europe. That was an important image. Then um, the, the whole idea of Europe as being the cradle of democracy. So going back to the old Athens, if you so want. Then some cultural achievements that people can be proud of, like, for example, the Renaissance and the kind of architecture that we still see, the, the artworks uh, that, that are connected to that time. But none of this really resonated a lot with uh, European citizens. And then in the 1990s, with the wall of the Berlin Wall, that's when like this whole idea of World War II as being a, a fixed point, if you so want, uh, came back. That's also when the Holocaust started to play an important role as some sort of negative memory. And, and then, of course, the memory connected to the end of World War II, the experiences of Central and Eastern European countries came also to the fore, particularly strongly after the first enlargement, of course, when 10 Central and Eastern European countries joined. So the whole narrative that the European Union or the Western states of the European Union had built since 1945 was suddenly a bit called into question. And how, how was this called into question? What were the differences? Well, I mean, this, this memory was very much based on World War II and the Holocaust, um, which was a narrative that a lot of Central and Eastern European countries couldn't relate to very much. Um, and they felt that their own experience where World War II was not the end of a time of oppression, but only marked the beginning of a new occupation, was not recognized. And they, they lobbied very strongly from the very first sitting of the European Parliament for the recognition of those very painful memories that they experienced after 1945 and the equivalence of those memories as well, saying, well, our, our suffering under Stalinism, communism was as bad as your suffering under Nazism and fascism, and that should be recognized. Are those narratives still being used today in contemporary discussions or no? Or is there a different narrative now? No, absolutely. I mean, I think like the, there's some sort of convergence. So on the European level, while... 
I think everywhere else there's still this debate about equivalence, etc., which is an old debate if you think about it. I mean, this it goes back to the totalitarianism paradigm, which was already discussed in the 1980s with the so-called Historica Streit, historians debate. It's still something that, that is being debated around. There's a lot of very strong emotions usually. And I think also because it goes deeper than just the question of equivalence. It's, it's, it has to do with question of recognition also. Recognition, not only of those memories, but generally speaking of recognition of the Central and Eastern European states within the European Union. Um, I think they felt very much that they had to take on almost everything that the Western states were expecting them to take on and among them, like this narrative on history, um, which they felt was not theirs. It is indeed some sort of soft entrance criteria. So um, candidate countries, even though it's not part of the acquis communautaire, they have to show that they're able to deal with their past. So it is an important feature, but a lot of the contestations revolve indeed exactly around this. So what happened on the European level, despite all this contestation that is still there, is that there is some sort of official recognition. Uh, it started in 2009 with the introduction of another Remembrance Day, which is the 23rd of August, which remembers the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in 1939. So that was basically the, the start, if you so want, of the division of Europe, because it allowed Hitler and Stalin to divide Poland among themselves, preparing, if you so want, World War II and the, yeah, the invasion of Poland. And uh, it has been celebrated for a long time in Central and Eastern Europe as Black Ribbon Day. And it was used by Western activists often to draw attention to human rights violations in the former Soviet Union. So it has a, has a long story. And it was chosen, indeed, to commemorate all victims of... Um, there was a debate about like whom they're going to remember, right? Is it just the victims of Stalinism? And then is it Stalinism and communism? Or is it only communism? Like the, the terminology here is important. Or all totalitarian regimes? And then again, we have the whole question of totalitarianism, what falls under it and what doesn't. So lots of terms that are very debated and are very yeah complicated in a way. But th this was the, the yeah compromise, if you so want, of having this specific Remembrance Day that is clearly geared towards recognizing officially the narrative of, of the Central and Eastern European states. And you can see that, that I think since then, contestation within the European Union has also diminished. So there's a lot less than there was before. And this kind of narrative of saying, well, there's equivalence between those experiences runs through also when you look at resolutions that were passed later, the newest resolution on the importance of the past, for example, which was passed in 2019 by the European Parliament. That makes clear references to those past experiences of all Europeans, and but then moves on and talks again about the future. So that's interesting, right? As if, or like expressing the idea that if we don't deal with those memories in an adequate way, question is what is adequate, <laughs> but again, I'm just <laughs> opening all kinds of like boxes, <laughs> question marks here, then there's a huge, huge risk for democracy. And I think about, okay, the extreme right movements that we've seen growing in the last years, yeah, the, the rise of nationalism, etc. So like there again, past and future are very closely connected. How realistic is it then to talk about a collective European memory if there's so many contestations and, Europe and collective European identity? 
Yeah, that's indeed a very good question. And if you ask different people, they will probably all say like, oh, no, European memory, that's impossible to have because there's all these different narratives. And how can you put them all together? Is this actually something we want? Do we want to have some side of homogenizing narrative here or not? But I think the question is, again, one of definition. What does a European memory mean? If we talk about some sort of common narrative that everybody finds themselves in, I think that's indeed impossible. But if we talk about a space, a framework, where these different memories can be listened to and can be exchanged, then I think we can talk about a European memory, which sounds a bit funny, but like this whole logo of United in Diversity would also apply there. One point I actually uh, wanted to pick on was considering, the, for example, the, the war in Ukraine. The, you said mostly within the European Union, these continent stations have, let's say, diminished or figured a way to coexist what is the well, the elephant in the room the 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 other contestation that does exist maybe outside of the european union how does that play out here yeah i mean you asked before like how those narratives also still play out in contemporary politics and i think the ukrainian war is a good example in point because if you look at the way different actors have tried to legitimize certain actions they usually went back to historical uh, analogies. They used memory very much as an argument to say, okay, we have to do this because on the one hand, but then if you look at Russia, they were doing exactly the same. So I think like the use of history here, the use of memory has become so blatantly obvious since the Ukraine war that whenever you talk to someone about the importance of memory and how this is being used also politically, abused politically, I think <laughs> everybody is quite aware of like what the kind of power that memory can have when it comes to yeah, legitimizing actions. And they can go in both directions. Huh? Russia is using the same <laughs> that the European Union does for their own purposes. So we go back to memory being very malleable and being also a tool, a political tool that can be used by different actors for different aims and needs. And to that point, since the celebration on the 9th of May in Russia is very different, how do these this narrative, um, how does it compare to the one that has been created now within the European Union? Oh, clear differences there, right? Um, and it's, I remember very much a, a couple of years ago when um, Russia staged this huge pompous celebration that everyone in the European Union was watching this and going, okay, <laughs> we, we are so far away from having some sort of common interpretation also of the end of World War II here. And maybe it was already preparing a little bit this shift or this rift, if you so want, in the memory scape that we are moving in, landscape that we are moving in, which became very obvious now with Russia just moving in a completely different direction. We have been talking about post-war memory in the EU for the majority of this discussion, but maybe if we want to bring it to the present moment of the current debate, where does Europe's colonial history figure into this debate? How does Europe look at its past and what kind of memory and narratives around that memory and that past does it construct to deal with this history? It basically doesn't. <laughs> yeah. No, colonialism is a huge gap in European memory. It's, it's a really a white spot. It's maybe not surprising if you look at the national level because it's exactly the same story there. This is a big problem. It has not been faced properly by any European country. And the European Union is really no exception there. It's as 
active they were when it came to memories of other wars, as silent has been the Europeans so far when it comes to the memory of colonialism. And of course, I mean, there's there's differences between different countries when it comes to dealing with this past. Some have dealt a little bit better than others. But I think in all national countries, national me- member states, the, this image is a little bit the same. So yeah, this, this gap really. And if we then move on the European level, on the one hand, while there's the silence, this has not been adequately addressed anywhere, especially not in terms of atonement, symbolic atonement, but also not in in financial terms in any way, of course. We should always keep in mind that the European Union also doesn't have any competences in that field. But they have been very active when it comes to yeah, World War II. We talked about the experience of of Stalinism, etc. And then colonialism is just silenced. If you look at colonialism in the European Union as a a term, then you find discussions about internal colonialism, for example, right? I mean, Ireland on the one hand, but then also the Central and Eastern European states that somehow feel colonized, so on, by the Western states. If if you search, I did that because I I wrote an article about this, so so I looked at like how often in which context colonialism appeared in the data repository. And uh, the only thing that came up was references to well, trade relationship with former colonies, for example, um, or, like I said, those accusations within the European Union of, of internal colonialism. And part of it, I think, is or part of the reason why there's this gap is because on the national level, not much has happened. And I think very often the European Union can only move properly if something has already happened on the national level. Otherwise, you have a very much a top-down approach, which is often not very successful. And then at the same time, you also have lots of countries that so far have blocked any kind of movement into that direction because they feel that this is not part of the history. And of course, we do know that some countries had bigger colonies than others. Some countries didn't have any colonies. um, And they somehow feel that this is not part of the history. They don't have to deal with it. So they were kind of blocking any kind of discussion into that direction, somehow feeling that yeah they were not concerned, forgetting completely that the colonial enterprise was a European-wide enterprise and that even countries that didn't have formal colonies themselves, they were often very active in providing material um, and having administration staffed by people. There was lots of exchange, of course. Um, They were benefiting from the trade that was happening with colonies of other countries as well. So it's a bit short-sighted to say we were not concerned. Yeah, the question is, of course, is is anything going to change? And I suspect that it's just a question of time. So if you look more carefully at what the the European Union is trying to do in this context, um, there's initiatives. They're small at the moment and they're not very wide-reaching and they're very much on the level of symbolic politics, of making funding available, for example, for research into this topic. But yeah, something big has not really happened so far. But I suspect if we look at the... Genesis also of memory of World War II, it also took time. It's not something that can just appear from one day to the other. So I think as national countries are working through their own past, then maybe at some point of time the European Union can pick that up as well. Is it also a question of is this useful? Is this memory useful to resurface? That's a very good question indeed. I think we kind of touched upon this usefulness of memories and that often memories change also when they're not useful anymore. And uh, I think the memory of colonialism could be a useful memory, right? Again, it would be a screen memory, a negative memory, something is like something we don't want to repeat. And the values that are stemming from this could be important for the European Union. 
but of course there's an it's it's also an external memory to a certain extent right the victims are not in europe well except for those that that move to europe but uh, a lot of them are outside of europe so i think that also plays a role and explains why there was so little movement in that direction so all of this kind of shows the 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 difficulty that that is creating a european collective memory and collective identity in that way so to bring it back to the beginning of 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 all of this you organized an international symposium on critical theories of history and memory which addressed the problem of how europe produces a european history or a collective memory of past events could you maybe elaborate a bit about this symposium as we come to the end of our podcast um yeah during the symposium we faced a different difficulty which was bringing together people coming from critical theory historiography or history and political science and we discovered very quickly that <laughs> we were not speaking the same language so we really we had to make a huge effort to explain to each other what we meant and i think this had i mean i'm kind of used to that because memory studies is very interdisciplinary and you always have to explain maybe more than you would do in a different context where people come from the same kind of disciplinary background but there it was particularly strong i think and we are trying to make a publication out of this now so it's going to be a special issue it's under review at the moment with history and memory but even while the articles came in i just realized how difficult it will be for us to like pull it all together simply because yeah there's just there's just so many different ways of of looking at this topic and uh, we are so used to moving within a, a certain yeah community that all speaks the same language that then suddenly when this is being thrown up it's it's more complicated to do so but yeah i think maastricht university is perfect environment for this because we're kind of always used to this right i mean you as students you get constantly thrown into this mix of waters and then you have to find your own way through that you probably are often being faced with contradictory uh, advice as well or contradictory uh, information so i think yeah this is a, this was a very maastricht experience to a certain extent <laughs> excellent yeah well, I, i hope it went well in the end and the findings will be published uh, they're still under review is that right yeah exactly so it's going to be a special issue which should come out by the end of the year with history and memory it's a journal looking forward to it and i think this is the perfect point to come to the end the segment of the podcast which is secondary sources where we ask the the guest to share some sources that could be useful to the listener if they want to dig deeper into this topic so what did you bring yes. <laughs> to the to the table shall we say <laughs> i looked at different things because i thought it's a bit boring to just uh, say read this book um so we talked about different terms right so if someone wants to know a little bit more about the different terms or get completely confused now by listening and just like, like what on earth does that mean there is a very nice research by utrecht university which is called nitbits where different scholars that often coined these terms explain very briefly what they mean and it's it's nice to watch and to listen to it's just something also to refresh i mentioned the asmans for example so alida asman is actually one of them who explained something but then we also have michael rothberg who co coined the term multi-directional memory it's another thing that often comes up when you deal with memory issues you have astrid earl who talks about traveling memory you have Anne rigney who talks about transnational memory so there's lots of terms that are being explained very briefly by the scholars who actually invented them if you so on so it's it's a very nice resource 
Then, of course, I can draw your attention to the Memory Studies Association, which is the association that I co-founded with two colleagues. There's quite a number of interesting resources on the website. It's called Memory Cloud. And especially if you like podcasts like this, um, there's lots of different podcasts with all kinds of different topics, often very practical, dealing with memory issues, if you so want. I don't know, the, the contestations in Ireland, to give an example. And you can just listen to them. We also have regular yeah, webinars that are recorded and also on the website. So yeah, again, if you're more of a listener, I think that is, that is good. If you want to read an article, okay, well, there's the article on the memory of colonialism that I mentioned that I, I wrote a couple of years ago. I also have one that is coming out, or it actually already came out as a handbook article on European memory politics. So that gives you a quick overview of like European memory politics or really condensed and uh, yeah, I looked at films because I thought maybe it's interesting to, to see a few films on this. And of course, there's a plethora of films on, on memory, especially when it comes to World War II and, and the Holocaust. And some of them are probably well known, like Schindler's List or Shoah by Claud Landsmann. But then there's also some more recent ones. For example, Waltz with Bashir uh, in 2008, maybe some of you have watched that. Um, then The Act of Killing, which is 2012. That's a difficult film, but it deals exactly with those issues of how memories are being used politically, how they, can ch how they change over time, depending on the social and, and political needs. Wow, I think uh, that, that's, a, that's a great selection of, <laughs> of sources. Thank you very much. And I think that ends our podcast. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you, having you on. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with us. And all the sources you mentioned, of course, would be in the description of this episode. And to everyone listening to us, take care and stay tuned. The music for the MD podcast episode has been produced by Stone Ocean. And this podcast episode has been produced, recorded and edited by Brendan Hogan and yours truly, Sharal Abdullah. Talk to you soon. <laughs>